and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today on what is now our 48th episode. And as always, you're joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. And today we also have a very special guest on the podcast. His name is Aiden Muir, and he is an accredited sports dietitian here in Australia. He's also known as Aiden the Dietitian on Instagram, and he also has his own business called Ideal Nutrition. So we just brought him on the podcast today, you know, to have another view, you know, in when it comes to answering questions in regards to health, fitness, nutrition, dietetics, and uh, we thought it would be great to have his perspective on answering a few questions. So thank you so much for joining us today, Aiden. Pleasure to be on. Sweet. So yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, so I'm, like you said, an accredited sports dietitian. Um, I specialize in strength athletes. So I work predominantly with powerlifters, Olympic weightlifters, strongmen, and also off-season bodybuilders to a certain degree as well. Powerlifting is my biggest interest just because that's a hobby of mine as well. So I find that's easiest for me to relate with those athletes. But yeah, anything in that spectrum. And then also on the side, I do a little bit of chronic disease stuff, um, a lot of weight loss type of stuff too, just because I like that kind of 50-50 split between just because like I find like strength athletes so easy for me, basically it's just the same thing over and over and over. Um, so I like that variety and having that on the side as well. Yeah, I we can definitely resonate with that as well because I guess it sort of keeps you up to speed with like the um, the other literature as well and other nutrition sort of information as opposed to because we could just research um, strength based stuff all day, but it sort of keeps you on top of things. Like I guess treating other people as well. 100% agree with that. Yeah, just that variety is really good. Mm. And how did you find it? You know, obviously coming straight out of a dietetics master's degree and most people try to go into either private practice or clinical. How did you find it, you know, starting to specialize working with these types of athletes? Yeah, so that's a really good, good question. I, um, I only did an undergraduate, so not a master's, but I went straight into private practice for myself in Wagga Wagga, which is where I study. So it's a bit of a smaller town than Brisbane. Um, about 60,000 people. So I went into a pretty large gym, so 3,000 members at that gym, which is mind-blowingly massive for such a yeah. small That gym. is a big gym. <laughs> the owner, absolute genius. I learned so much from him. Um, but basically, I struggled right off the bat. So I, I didn't niche down or anything like that. I was just like a generalist dietitian, which you kind of have to be in a, in a town like that. Like there's like powerlifting is not even a sport in Wagga. <laughs> like there's only like... Yeah, there's not many people that come to mind that do it in Wagga. Um, but basically, I remember I worked at, in the gym at re- as a receptionist for a little bit just to get a lead in before I started the business. And then I opened up in January and I'm like, January, everyone's motivated, everyone's ready to go. And I had like two people book in in my first week. And I was like, what is going on? Like, I thought this would be easy. I just thought like, not easy. I thought like if I work hard, the results are going to come. I'm going to get the clients. And then I ran, I got so lucky and ran a really good Facebook ad and it just drew people in. I drew in about 20 people per week for a couple of week lead in. And then I basically got talking to um, Tyson Tripconey, who owns Fury Life, which is the largest dietitian business in Australia now. And he'd been making some good points that like when you're a new grad, it's really, really hard to run your own business and be a good dietitian, as I'm sure you guys understand. Like you have to work so hard to be a good ad um so I kind of wanted to like skip that learning curve a little bit and I went to work for him so I left like just as things were taking off I don't know if it was going to work or not and I spent about two and a half years working for him um as I mentioned to you guys just before this like I was doing like 40 to 60 sessions per week really just grinding away super hard at it and getting a ton of experience through that while also learning from a team of like 40 to 50 dietitians but I wasn't really specializing at that time. I was just doing everything. I was doing a bit of sports nutrition, but not a whole lot. And then about three months ago, I left and then reopened the private practice and just really hammered down on wanting to work with strength athletes. But I think because I had that general experience in the lead into it, that really, really helped to allow me to specialize. And because, as you mentioned, my Instagram is pretty much predominantly focused towards that type of people, that's how I've allowed or that's how it's worked out to have them all come through the door as well. Mm. Yeah, your Instagram's had a lot of growth as well. Like you've been putting out quality content. So yeah, the results follow. 
But um, yeah, do you find that social media is a big aspect for you in terms of um, getting clients or creating that community? For me, it's everything. Literally every client I have either came from Instagram or they came from somebody who was like word of mouth from somebody who originally found me through Instagram. It doesn't necessarily mean they all like, it's all come from Instagram. It's kind of like I train in a pretty large gym. I meet people and then they follow me on Instagram for a while. So there's a few points like I meet them, I talk to them and whatever, but like the Instagram's like where they see I know my stuff. Cause in person we're just strangers. I don't really talk about nutrition that much. Like, I don't know. It just makes me uncomfortable until someone's paying me for it. <laughs> like on Instagram, I'm just pumping out content every single day. So like they see that and like, you know, so he's talking about and then they will book in after that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's amazing the approach that you've taken because compared to a lot of influencers, you know, who share a lot about, you know, themselves, they create a lot of their own content in particular and things like that. You really help support other people and that helps, you know, that pays back in your sense too, because you're always reposting other people's content as well and really trying to share really good quality information that other people have created. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and I appreciate that. But a large part of it is just because I think other people are better at creating content than I am. So <laughs> take advantage of that. And I think I can help more people by doing that versus just creating my own. Obviously, I do create my own, but like by doing that, I can help more people. Yeah, certainly. All right. So we did get a lot of listener questions this week that people wanted to ask you. So I guess we can dive straight into those because it'd be awesome to hear your answers and your perspective on a lot of these things. So this first question was asked by Dr. Behrens, and it says, recent literature is pointing towards a higher protein intake. Can you speak to this? Yeah. So in regards to bodybuilders or just body composition in general, it's a really good question and it's something that I think a lot of dietitians in general are pretty down on in terms of they go towards the lower end of the recommendations versus the upper end of the recommendations. And the literature has, like they mentioned, it has been changing. It has progressed and it's the ranges are getting slowly, slowly higher. The range I go by now is like just for an off-season bodybuilder, I'd be looking at 1.6 to 2.2, assuming they're natural. Um, that's based off of um, Jim Araki put out a really good systematic review this year where that was what he came up to with 1.6 to 2.2, spread over a few meals at around 0.4 grams per kilogram per day. So four meals like that comes out as 1.6, so five or six meals, you'd be at the upper end of that. Um, where going higher than that, unless you're a special snowflake and a genetic outlier, um, probably has no real benefit. But going below that and you're really likely missing out on some potential gains around the table. And I should also mention that that's not just Jim Araki. His systematic review looked at, I believe it was Alan Aragon and Brad Schoenfield, one of their papers that came to that conclusion as well. So there's a ton of research into that. But what I find really interesting is what a lot of people do in practice and also competition prep as well. So Eric Helms put out a paper, this was a few years ago now, but it was on evidence-based recommendations for natural bodybuilders going into a show. And the recommendation he had was 2.3 to 3.1 grams per kilogram per day of lean body mass, not total body weight, but obviously mm -hmm. to prep like people are pretty lean, so it comes out pretty similar. And that is a lot higher than, at the time, that was higher than any other recommendations that were out there. So it is pretty high. It's pretty hard to achieve those kinds of numbers. But also really interestingly is what people actually do in practice. So there was another observational study so it's basically, I think it's called observational data, top five versus the rest, contest prep macros of national level, natural bodybuilders. Mm -hmm. And basically it had the people who placed in the top five started their prep at three grams per kilogram of total body weight per day. And they ended their prep at 3.3 grams per kilogram per day. Whereas the people who placed outside the top five were at 2.7 to start off with and then 2.7 at the end which is obviously lower total protein intake because they lost a bit of body weight as well. So what's actually happening in practice is everybody's going higher than these numbers as well, particularly the people who are winning shows from what I can tell. Same thing with off-season. Like even though I've mentioned 2.2 as that kind of upper end of what the research is showing people get their best results at, most bodybuilders are going above that range as well. So it's really, really hard to tell and there probably is more data to be needed, but I would say a pretty safe recommendation is within that 1.6 to 2.2 in the off season, 
potentially at the upper end of that if you're absolutely trying to maximize things. Mm. Yeah, definitely. We're completely with you on that. And I guess the one of the things we often factor in as well is obviously we deal with a lot of bodybuilders and strength athletes as well. And generally their foods are quite high in the off season. So if they are eating like an excess of like 500 grams of carbs a day, then we may add go even higher than 2.2 to accommodate for all the extra protein from the like the wholesome grains and stuff like that. But yeah, that's that's one thing we factor in. Yeah. So what's your take on that? So let's say that someone was going toward that lower end of like 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. What would be your emphasis on, you know, a quote unquote protein quality? So looking at the types of foods that really contain all of the essential amino acids, would you put a larger emphasis on that? Yeah, I definitely would be. And like that situation you just mentioned is a really good one in terms of like if somebody's having a whole lot of carbohydrates, it's going to be coming like they're going to have a decent amount of lower biological value proteins in there as well. So like if they're at 1.6 there, but then they're having over over 500 grams of carbohydrate, it wouldn't be ideal. And the other thing is just like the practicalities of the diet too. Like when somebody's eating that many calories overall, you probably would want a little bit more protein rather than going at the lowest point for protein and then at a super high range for carbohydrate. So would you say that for most athletes, because, you know, a lot of athletes are in tune with this kind of thing and a lot of athletes do meet their protein requirements and they usually can easily do it without consuming protein supplements, you know, just even Mm -hmm. a large chicken breast can provide you with a substantial amount of protein. Uh, So for athletes like that, do you ever talk to them about potentially even slightly lowering their protein intake so that they can consume more energy from carbohydrates to accommodate, you know, for increased exercise performance, or even if you were working with a bodybuilder, perhaps slightly lowering their protein intake from like three grams per kilogram of body weight so that they could consume maybe some more carbohydrates. Have you ever been in that situation? Yes. I've had a few clients like that. Um, and yeah, hundred percent, I definitely do look at that in practice. I probably don't take them down as low as I would with certain other people who aren't really in that position, but I do reduce it very slightly just because like from a micronutrient perspective, like it allows them more of an opportunity to get more fruits and vegetables and stuff like that in, but also carbohydrates are probably going to fuel their training a little bit better than protein. They're going to have better training sessions because of that. And they're probably going to get slightly better results due to that as well. Yeah, awesome. Cool. I think we've covered that fairly comprehensively. We'll move on to the next one. So the next one is by Rudin, and he asks, low testosterone levels after dieting, what can I do to replenish? Yeah, another great question. So I, there's two things I'd really be looking at. One is just increasing your calorie intake again. There's two options. Some people like the really, really slow reverse dieting option where they come out of a diet really slowly in terms of slow, like increasing calories by say 100 calories per day each week um i prefer to go straight back to maintenance particularly if it's out like if you've just come out of a prep or something like that going at least to maintenance to get out of that position probably into a small calorie surplus if it's a less aggressive diet then i'll just go to maintenance or maybe slightly i'll probably just go to maintenance and then start increasing from there but that's going to be the biggest thing just increasing calories again the other thing is fat intake so when dietary fat intake drops too low even if calorie intake, total calorie intake is appropriate, it can still affect um, testosterone, particularly, yeah, the research is mostly on strength athletes showing this, but like when it's below, I'm trying to think of the actual numbers, I think it's about 0.3 grams per kilogram of body weight per day. Um, when I put into practice for most people, it's like, say, 50 grams for most males or 40, 30 grams for females. Going below that usually has a small reduction in testosterone, which is obviously going to affect performance as well. So at least meeting that minimum mark for fat intake is going to be ideal and probably going slightly above it just to have a safe buffer. Mm, Yeah, Yeah. again, we're 100% with you on that and something that uh, I guess will not tear as much, but I've experienced myself. And I think the big thing that I would say to this question is that like it's not going to be, don't expect like an instantaneous uh, like replenish overnight. It's going to take, it's more of like a chronic sort of approach, maybe over a a couple of months, it's going to creep back up. But yeah, definitely going back to maintenance is what we usually recommend. And again, if you're, if you're coming off the stage, then always that we usually recommend like 5 to 10% of your stage body weight in the first four to six weeks or so. Definitely putting an emphasis on um, gaining a bit more weight, more nutrition, still training hard, sleeping adequately and 
probably avoid the uh, testosterone boosting supplements. <laughs> yeah, particularly, yeah, especially, yeah. Like if something's inadequate, like if somebody has like no zinc in their diet or something like that, then yeah. a testosterone booster might make a difference. But outside of that rare circumstance, particularly in bodybuilders, that's a very rare circumstance. They're not going to make any difference. Yeah, it's like, dude, you just need a little bit more body fat. <laughs> yeah, 100%, yeah. And um, in terms of, you know, paying attention to blood parameters and things like that, Aiden, do you work with any clients where you actually do monitor their bloods? Yeah, I have some certain situations where I look at, particularly because I work with some like heavy powerlifters, like I'm talking like 140 kilos around that range. It's a very different circumstance to bodybuilders, but like some of them will have high cholesterol. Some of them will have um, high blood glucose levels. Mm -hmm. So having to make adjustments to their diet and even just their lifestyle in general so that they continue to be at that weight or whatever weight class they're best going to perform at while also mitigating or minimizing their potential risk for chronic diseases and anything like that. Outside of that, I work with a few people who are enhanced as well and that has an impact on say their liver functions and stuff like that or the liver function tests and the enzymes associated with that. So I do look at that. But in most cases, there's not too much. Outside of that, I suppose I should mention like vitamin D. I really care about vitamin D and iron are the other two ones that I look at. So if somebody is deficient in vitamin D, which isn't super rare, if they are deficient in that, solving that is going to help because even one of the functions is literally muscle strength. If you have enough vitamin D, you're probably going to be a little bit stronger as well as a few other small things like that. Most people with decreased testosterone also happen to have low vitamin D, but it's really hard to tell if one causes the other and obviously iron particularly females if they um are deficient in iron they're not going to have as much energy they won't be able to train as well they won't feel as good throughout the day so addressing that is definitely going to help too okay so moving on to this next question which was asked by eva it says add lean mass and reduce body fat cardio before or after muscle training should you walk or should you run for your cardio yeah, interesting question. Um, so my straight up answer for the cardio is definitely not before training. That's going to reduce your performance in the gym. You won't be able to lift as heavy. You won't be able to get the same kind of volume. You won't be able to progress as effectively. Um, so definitely not before if you have the choice. If you have to have it after or if you have to have it around your workout, it would be better to have it after. But if possible, separating it from your workout would be best. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's definitely the answer I'd go with for that. What was the other part of the question? So oh, she, she, she was asking like in regards to the modality of cardio. So she was yeah. saying whether or not you should walk or should you run? Yeah. So my insight on that is like, it doesn't, it probably doesn't matter a whole lot. Um, it's real. in my opinion, it depends on how hard you're training overall. Like if you are training, at your optimal capacity, which most people trying to get to that next level probably want to be doing, I probably wouldn't be recommending a whole lot of high intensity stuff because that will take away from your ability to recover from your training. In that case, it's probably going to be slightly better doing some low intensity stuff just because I think that's easier to recover from. Um, But if you are training suboptimally or you're at less than what you can recover from, then potentially the higher intensity stuff might be more beneficial. Yeah. I guess sometimes you have to ask yourself, like, either these people are just workhorses or, like, maybe you need to question the intensity of your resistance training session if you, like, finish a leg workout and then you're like, man, I feel like I could go for a 10-kilometer run. Like, Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, most people training at their absolute where they should be training for optimal results probably aren't going to be feeling like doing that. Yeah. And what's, what's your take on different modalities of cardio? Because, you know, there is some literature out there that suggests that perhaps doing cycling for your cardiovascular work might be more optimal than doing something like a run just because of the eccentric component. I honestly don't have much insight on that. I wouldn't be able to say too much on that. Oh, okay. Never mind. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, uh, in terms of the first aspect of this question as well, it was about I guess, body recomposition and gaining muscle and losing fat simultaneously. Where would you say nutrition comes into that and what your experience is on it? Yeah, so the first thing I think of is it's a very inefficient way to do things. There's a reason why the majority of bodybuilders bulk and cut, whether you want to use those words, like you could use the way I word it is like if somebody's bulking, 
it's just a calorie surplus, even if it's a small calorie surplus, whatever. They do calorie surpluses for an extended period of time, and then they'll do a calorie deficit for a certain period of time. There's a reason they do that, because it's so much more efficient in terms of how the body works for gaining muscle and losing fat. Is it possible to recomp? 100%. It is possible, particularly the less trained someone is. Like if somebody's near their genetic potential, it's probably not going to happen. But if somebody's newer to training and they have a pretty solid routine, they have a pretty solid diet overall, and they're sleeping well, doing all those things, it's definitely possible. It definitely does happen. In terms of nutrition and how I would approach it, first thing, obviously, just getting your calories at maintenance level. Um, second thing is going to be getting enough protein. So around that 1.6 to 2.2, depending on how lean they are. Third thing is I like to periodize nutrition to a certain degree. In this case, I like it in terms of just on training days, having slightly more calories and slightly more carbohydrates. And then on rest days, having slightly less. And I think that will very slightly improve results. But those are the only real things I'd necessarily be looking at. And that's probably pretty close to optimizing anything you can do from a dietary perspective there. Mm. And yeah, something something else similar to this that I wanted to get your thoughts on in terms of cycling, I guess, carbohydrates on different mm-hmm. days is there has become, I don't know whether to call it a fad, but some people, I guess, have very high carbohydrates on their training days with like low to moderate fat and then on their off days training rest days i should say they have like very high like double or even 2.5 times the fat intake with lower carbohydrates yeah Yeah. i'd say that's a very it's quite common we've seen from social media in like the uk bodybuilding scene yeah i'm of the opinion that it won't really make any significant differences doing that and if it does, it'll be like a one or two percent better. But it's—I don't think it's going to make much difference at all. I think it's going to balance out overall. Mm. Yeah, I guess the way I see it is, I don't see the point of because, yeah, in that rest day, you you would be losing a lot of glycogen if your carbohydrates are like half or even less than half what they usually are. If you're trying to recover on your rest day and then you go into your next training session deprived of glycogen, then I just don't see any benefit in that. So, yeah. like theoretically I don't really see any benefit and like in terms of the research there's really nothing on this like in terms of most nutrition periodization for bodybuilders there's really minimal out there in general so it's hard to say from an from an evidence-based perspective especially Mm -hmm. when theoretically we can't see that it's better yeah a lot of yeah a lot of what we say is hypothetical here so yeah 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 Yeah, I definitely don't see any like benefit to just having that acute boost in fatty acid intake because as we know things happen over a chronic period of time and you can't expect amazing results just changing one thing during one day yeah all right so this next question is asked by charlotte and this is an interesting one that some dietitians are probably asked quite often um it says does your body adapt slash plateau if you eat the same or similar meals every single day in terms of body composition it doesn't matter as long as the macros and calories come out the same. It's not going to matter for muscle gain or fat loss. In terms of digestion, potentially, um, it might make a little bit of a difference. There are definitely some bacteria in your gut that adapt if you eat certain things. Using a classic example, um, people who are lactose intolerant, if they have foods that contain lactose relatively consistently in just small amounts, the bacteria in their large intestine that feeds on that kind of multiplies or grows. But when they stop having any lactose at all, it decreases. And then when they do have it, they get more symptoms because they no longer have that bacteria. I extrapolate that to a lot of areas of foods in that it probably applies that if you eat the same kind of fruits and vegetables over and over and over, then you probably will slightly improve your ability to digest them. I don't think that's necessarily a good thing though, in terms of we do have all this research that shows the people who have greater than 30 different plant-based foods each week tend to have what we would call better gut health than those or a more diverse microbiome than those who are having less than 15. So I really, really push variety on all of my clients just for overall health reasons. But I would be wrong if I didn't think there was any form of adaptation to having the same stuff over and over as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred. that's definitely what we preach as well. Like, just diversity and fiber types, different micronutrients, and not just the your typical like B vitamins and stuff like that, but also like antioxidants, phytochemicals from the different variety and colors, like red, yellow, green, whatever it is, and exactly. yeah, so on. 
Yeah, I guess some people might just be worried if they're always eating the exact same food every single day that their body just does get really, really efficient at metabolizing it and absorbing that energy and digesting it and everything like that. Yeah, that's a good point too, because like potentially that's a very small factor and that potentially does happen. But yeah, I wouldn't be concerned about it at all. Yeah. Okay, so moving on to the next one. This one says, as you increase muscle mass, do you also increase calorie intake? Yeah, so definitely if you're trying to keep gaining at that same rate, you need to do that. Muscle is metabolically active, so it literally will increase your total daily energy expenditure. Also combined with the fact that you're heavier, so even little activities like walking around and stuff like that, that's going to burn a little bit more calories. Um, Another factor is your NEAT, so non-exercise activity thermogenesis probably changes the longer you're in a calorie surplus. Even little things like fidgeting, like when you see people close to a show, they just stop fidgeting, they talk slower, they move slower, all these little things happen that decreases their total daily energy expenditure. They're only tiny things, but it adds up. When people have been in a calorie surplus for an extended period of time, suddenly they're doing all of these things like they're moving really quick there. Yeah, just fidgeting, all of those little things that burn a little bit more calories. Um, And because of that, you have to slowly increase your calories to match that as well. And yeah, something related to this I wanted to get your thoughts on is like you see people who are similar body weight, similar training ages and stuff like that, similar age as well. And so someone might be on 3000 calories in a, in an off season. Some people might be on like 4,500. Like how do you, obviously NEAT is a big factor and assuming they have similar NEAT, would you attribute it to any other factors? Yeah, I would say NEAT is probably the biggest factor. There are other little factors. And one thing that I never discredit is that people suck at tracking macros. Like, <laughs> Like, I don't, I'm going to put it out there. Bodybuilders are better than most, but like, yeah, some people overestimate, some people underestimate. And like, whenever I hear like a one or like an anecdotal story like that, my first go-to is that's probably part of it. But outside of that, I would say niche is probably the biggest factor. Like people don't all spend the same amount of time standing. People walk different amounts, like, and then just all those little individual habits as well add up to probably a pretty significant difference. Because, yeah, some we actually are... Uh quoted you in one of our other episodes it was one of the posts you put up in relation to like a processed diet versus a whole whole foods diet and how much energy the whole foods diet actually uses in comparison to digest and metabolize yeah so that's a good point that i just missed there too yeah like that could add up to like a 10 percent difference like if somebody's having like really high fiber they're getting a lot of whole grains versus somebody or getting a lot of vegetables as well versus somebody who is just all processed foods going to make a massive difference Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. so just taking advantage of that thermic effect of food yeah and something that i've really noticed that this is especially with jack because jack does have a very high caloric intake and i know he tracks to a t um but something uh, (laughs) uh, something i've definitely noticed with him is that you know his other than in the gym, you know, where his energy expenditure is very high and walking to and from the gym, he's not like a laborer, you know, or he's not working mm. a super active job where he's on his feet all day walking around. But something about him is that his core body temperature always seems to be really hot. Yeah. So he's always releasing a lot of heat. Do you have any clients like this that, you know, they're like you will never see them in anything but a singlet or just shirtless because they're always so damn hot? <laughs> Um, I've never spoken to clients about that, so I don't, I don't know if that's the thing. Um, personally, I'm in a relatively similar situation. Um, yeah, I've yeah consistently been on over 4,000 calories myself, coming from a very, very skinny background. And yeah, every relationship I've ever been in, people have always commented on that. Because yeah. yeah, I guess I, the evidence does point towards that there isn't that much genetic variability in terms of your maintenance calories. And because uh, I guess... People like to say, oh, I've, I wasn't blessed with the genetics for losing weight or I find it more difficult, yeah. I have big bones, whatever it is. But there's not actually that much variability in terms of how much people energy people expend. So like, yeah, Tierra and I are a little bit interested in like people like myself and you who just do have higher intakes and like sort of uncovering why that might be because, of course, like for bodybuilders, like the more food you can eat in the off season, potentially more in the when you are in prep. So I guess you're just, you're really just pushing that homeostasis and your body doesn't necessarily always want to be any heavier. And 
when we think about the way that we burn off energy, it is released as heat. So that might have something to do with it. Yeah, definitely. And like, I even think more so like that heat thing, like when people are in calorie surpluses, that's more of a thing than when they're in a calorie deficit as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When you're dieting, you're always just freaking cold. (laughs) All right. So this question, it's kind of going to bring up a little bit of discussion, but it says, is eating a cup of brown rice as carbs right before sleeping okay? So I guess this is a very specific question in terms of, you know, just brown rice. But I guess the main point is, is it all right to eat a large amount of carbohydrates right before you fall asleep? If this was my Q&A Saturday, I would just say, <laughs> <laughs> and then leave it. Because <laughs> like, yes, of course, it's okay. Like, there's no issues. Like, if your calories and macros come out the same, it's not going to be the end of the world. Like, a cup is a small amount. It's not going to cause any issues digestion wise or anything like that's that's going to keep you awake it's not like having a large meal right before bed or anything like that there's really no nothing i would stress about with this yeah and what what is your thoughts on like digestive efficiency before bed or like consuming a meal and then sleeping do you think there is anything to take into consideration yeah from a practical perspective like there's two things i look at so one is there's a fair bit of research that shows carbohydrates within, say, two hours before bed probably helps people sleep better. And because we know that it doesn't necessarily lead to any more fat gain, or I'm of the opinion it doesn't lead to any more fat gain if calories and macros are match, um, that could be a good idea potentially to help people who have issues sleeping. Um, but in terms of like digestion and everything like that, if somebody does have a large meal right before bed, sometimes it doesn't affect their ability to get to sleep, but it's one of those things that reduces their sleep quality. So I would definitely try to avoid having something massive before sleep. And it's a, it's a pretty bodybuilder thing to do as well in terms of you've got so much food to eat. And if for whatever reason your schedule hasn't allowed you to get it during the day, then potentially you probably have it before bed. And like if that's the only way you hit your calories and macros, it's probably still worthwhile to do it if it's going to make a significant difference overall. But if you want to set things up optimally, you want to try to avoid doing that and get your meals in earlier in the day. And um, and this is actually good a good question because it's on the topic of obviously carbs before bed. Uh, so mm-hmm. this next one was asked by Toby and it says, if you train in the morning, for example, 6 a.m., is it too early to carb load the night before at 9 p.m.? Yeah, so I heard you actually talking about this on a podcast, probably one of your more recent ones, um, where you said that is a good idea, and I do agree with that. I think it's worthwhile. I think if somebody is in the off-season and they're having a large amount of carbs overall, it's not going to matter. Like, they've got enough glycogen. It's always going. They're always going to have enough glycogen that it's not going to matter. It's not like they're training 100% faster. They've got glycogen in the system. Mm-hmm. If somebody is in a deficit for a prolonged period of time, though, I think it is more beneficial to be doing this the night before. Will it make a lot of difference? Probably not, but they might feel a little bit better while they're training. They might have a slightly better training session, better quality, and therefore making better progress over the long term too. Yeah, definitely, because I've certainly run into that with a lot of my clients who train at like the crack of dawn. And um, if you ever, like, if they say that they have low energy during their training session, but then you suggest like, hey, do you want to try to get something small in, even if it's a piece of toast with honey or a banana before your session? And they're like, literally, I just cannot eat at that time of the morning. Then I guess you really have to do think that, well, technically their dinner the night before is their pre-workout meal. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not ideal. It's not the best way to do things, but it probably can help to a certain degree. Yeah. Mm. All right, so this will probably be a good question for all of our uh, newly graduated dietitians listening. So this one was asked by Jasmine, and it says, how do you run your online nutrition business and online consultations? Yeah, so giving away all my secrets here, I don't actually do a whole lot. Basically, I use Zoom consults or Zoom, just it's similar to Skype, I use Zoom for my consults. Um, I use Acuity Scheduling, which is just some software that links into my Instagram for people to book in for their consults. And I've been doing a pay per session model up until pretty recently, um, where it's just like $150 initials, $90 reviews. Um, If you do the maths on that and consider that I have no expenses in terms of I don't have to pay room rent or anything like that, it's all online. It's I don't need to do a whole lot of work to make a good income. 
in terms of like if that's 15 clients a week, that's good money. Um, obviously, it's a little bit more than that, more clients than that, but it's pretty efficient because of that. And then I've switched from that paper session to a subscription model just because I've got pretty good retention with clients, but like I don't want any clients to ever leave basically. And I want to see them on basically my terms in terms of I want to see people fortnightly. Um, and if people are thinking about the money, they might push it back from fortnightly to three weeks or monthly or something like that. And in my head, that leads to worse results. So I've switched to a subscription fee now. So it's just $50 per week. Um, so they don't think about that, but that also includes weekly written check-ins, which isn't something that I don't know of any dietitians doing that outside of the bodybuilding space. And then on top of that, just because I've got a lot, a lot of time on my hands because it's so efficient and I want it to be this way, I'm always open for messages or emails from my clients. So somebody could literally message me at any time and I'll get back to them pretty much straight away. And then because I keep it so efficient with clients and stuff like that, and that's 100% intentional because like I said, I was doing 40 to 60 sessions per week previously and that was a grind. I've left it open for a lot of other opportunities so I can go on podcasts and do stuff like that. I can spend a lot of time on Instagram, more time than I'm proud of, but it's worthwhile because <laughs> it drives my business. That's where all the clients come from. And I'm also doing meal plans for a pretty big gym. Not a big, like they've got like four locations, but they've got a lot of people coming through for a gym franchise where they're all accredited sports nutritionists to a certain degree. So they're not dietitians, but they've got a qualification. But anybody who goes through their gym challenges, which is how they make the majority of their money, um, Anybody who's outside of the scope of that, they send to me to do their meal plans as well. And that's a pretty large percentage of my revenue as well. So basically, key business model, Instagram, put out free content, try to make it as valuable as possible, try to make it valuable for the audience rather than for myself, which is what a lot of people try to do, self-promotion. And that is the lead generator to get clients in to see me, but there's usually a few touch points. And then I put them into that system of ongoing consults and I do a meal plan for every client as well, which is pretty rare for dietitians too. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's the be all and end all in terms of obviously there's a lot of counseling and guidance and everything outside of that. And there's definitely clients who a meal plan is not necessarily suited for where I call that an example for them, not necessarily something they have to stick to versus my more elite athletes where I'm like, please just try and do this almost 100%. <laughs> Um, but basically, that's the structure, and that's how I see people. Mm. Well, yeah, it seems to be working really well for you um, from what we've seen. And, yeah, something I wanted to comment on was how, I guess, the bodybuilding scene has actually done something quite good in that it does do those weekly sort of check-ins with the client or fortnightly, and you do have a lot of communication, and which is obviously key in a prep especially. But I think more more dietitians might benefit from doing that just because at the end of the day, it's going to come down to like compliancy with something. And if they don't understand something, whether they can text or email. And yeah, I think that's a valuable sort of service to offer as a dietitian. We all know how much can change, you know, if you only do a fortnightly review or a monthly review. Jesus, like if we think about our own lives, how much has changed in the last two weeks or the last month, like it would be really, really hard to... Uh, optimize and your progress and really keep someone on track in that case exactly and like that's that's where i stole the idea from like i obviously care about the bodybuilding space like i've been coached by powerlifting coaches before online and i've seen that and i've tried as a dietitian i've gone through like that traditional model i've done it it's worked very very well but i always knew there was a better way to do it and as i get more interest from clients and stuff like that obviously my prices are increasing going higher and higher and higher I need a model where I can get that constant communication mm -hmm. and obviously it can't be per session just because the price will be too high. They're never going to pay frequently enough for those little things, like little changes in life, which is going to impact their nutrition and their results overall. Yeah, definitely. But the great thing about all of our line of work is that because we love it so much, you know, and we love actually speaking to our clients and checking in, even if you get a text from a client with a question, which takes, a, you know, like less than a minute to respond to and think about, you know, it doesn't feel like work. You genuinely want to help someone. It's exciting. Yeah. I say that to all my clients because they're like, oh, he's so busy. He doesn't want to receive it. It's like, I want this. I love clients to do that. Exactly. Like, <laughs> like, you're not, you're not bothering me. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's why I've set it up this way so that I can have clients like that. It's good. Yes. Yeah. 
So, um, so this next question, it kind of relates to what you really brought up to, at the very beginning about how you predominantly work, you know, power lifters, strong men, you do work with some bodybuilders in their off season, but this one was asked by arid nutritional and it says, does Aiden work with bodybuilders or power lifters more and which do you prefer? Yeah. So powerlifters definitely, I prefer that. That's more what I work with. I do see quite a few um, bodybuilders. I hope none of them are listening to this because they don't know that I don't prep people for shows and I'm sure they have intentions of me prepping them. Um, so I'll cross that bridge when I get to it, but basically I don't want to prep people for shows. Um, a big reason for that is because I will never compete and I never have the interest in that. And I think having gone through prep like both of you guys have gives you a much greater insight than I'll ever have. There's only so much you can read and learn from reading. Like you actually, if you do stuff, you learn so much more from it. Like as an example, I've done a ketogenic diet very briefly for example, like for a short period of time. But every time I get a client who wants to do keto, I know what they've gone through. I know like it's a big, big difference. Um, and I kind of extrapolate that to prep as well. So right now, Anybody who wants to prep, basically I refer on potentially to you, potentially to other people. And my intention is to hire a dietitian who will prep people. So I'll handle the off season and then hopefully get them lean enough to be in striking distance of a prep and then hand over to that dietitian to then prep them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that Jack and I both really respect that. And we're totally in the same position of, you know, really focusing on uh, what you're best at and staying in your own lane. And uh, we've definitely had, you know, clients come to us who we've referred on to other people because we honestly know that, you know, someone else's expertise might be better suited for that client. Yeah, 100%. I was speaking to um, an exercise physiologist and she was saying, like, pretty much everybody in business thinks they're the best at what they do. Like personally, like it sounds horrible, but as a dietitian, I think for the clients I see, I think I'm the best. Like it sounds super arrogant, but like I literally, I literally think that if I'm prepping someone, I, I don't think I'm the best at that. So that's the time to hand off. Yeah. Yeah. And so what do you love about, you know, coaching power lifters then? I, it's so weird. Cause like I've had people like, like weight loss stuff where it's like absolutely changed their lives. And I feel nothing like I'm pretty emotionless. Like I feel nothing in terms of like, oh, that was all them. Like that they did that all themselves. Whereas when it comes to a powerlifter, if they add like 30 kilos to their total, that is the best feeling in the world for me. Like myself as a lifter, like if I hit like a tiny PB, like that is also the best feeling in the world. So it's kind of like translating that onto like, I know how good a lifter feels when, they do that and I like to think that I'm pretty responsible for that too in a certain degree as well. Mm. Oh, and um we'd be super interested, you know, to hear, you know, your experiences if you've had any on, you know, powerlifters perhaps trying to make weight for a competition. Can you cut off uh, can you cut? <laughs> um can you touch on, you know, some like some of your approaches for how you'd get an athlete ready? Yeah, so that's another great question. It's so so complex and it's really hard to like because it's got to be individualized, but basically um, for, it depends on the level. Like if somebody is not super lean and they've got plenty of fat to lose, obviously my goal is for them to just cut body fat if possible. Like if I get them far enough out from their competition, I, I want them to get into that weight class they want to be in without having to do like a water cut or anything like that. But if they're at like the top level and they're looking to break like a record, like an Australian record or something like that, that's when I'm more into water cuts. So the research shows it's mostly extrapolated from fighters because there's not a whole lot on powerlifters. But for fighters, a 5% loss in weight over five days has been shown to lead to no decrease in performance at all. So it can't just be like a one or two day process, but spread over five days. Like a 5% is a pretty decent drop. 8% is pretty possible, but it will lead to a decrease in performance. And there's some pretty big freaks out there who they can do a 10% cut and it's only a small decrease in performance if they do it well. And the way to do it is to not just cut from one area, which is how a lot of people try to do it. Like they might just limit their water intake or something like that. The way I do it is manipulating sodium, water, carb, and fiber intake. So basically um, the way I do it in practice is from basically like seven days out, cut down carbs pretty significantly. Like I'm talking like less than 30 grams per day, depending on the size of the athlete. 
because one, carbs get stored as glycogen, as you know. So that could be like, say, I don't know, just number off the top of my head, it could be like 500 grams coming from that. Every gram of carbohydrate stored as glycogen can store like three to five grams of water as well. Um, even if you go to the lower end of that, three grams, like that means every gram of glycogen you store is like four grams on top. That's a pretty significant amount of weight as well. I go pretty high sodium for the first couple of days of that cut because aldosterone and antidiuretic hormone will then regulate based on that. So that when you drop sodium later on leading into the competition, your body is just going to be excreting water far more effectively than if you hadn't have done that. And then same kind of thing, drinking a ton of water as well in those few days at the start of that, because once again, hormones regulating around that will want you excreting water so that when you get closer to it, you excrete it far more effectively and you won't need to use a sauna or anything like that. And then also right in the few days before the competition, going really, really low fiber and also just decreasing food volume as well. So that way you can have less basically food stored in your digestion system because that also has weight as well. And when you combine all of those, you're taking a little bit of weight from all of these different areas so that the cut's no longer as drastic as if you had just dehydrated yourself for like two or three days in the lead up to it. And that way you then don't have that much of a decrease in performance and it's easier to rehydrate and refuel to get to optimal performance. Fantastic. Wow, that's that's really great. I'm so glad that you were able to touch on all of that in such great detail. Yeah, I did a lot of research on that because, <laughs> like, I've got some pretty serious athletes who, like, yeah, we want to get it right, basically. Like, if you're going for that record, you don't want to mess up that process. So it's something I've mm-hmm. for quite a period of time to make sure I got right. And because Jack and I, you know, will admit we're not that in tune with the powerlifting scene, how far out from their competition do they need to weigh in? Yeah, so it's either, like, it's got a few different weights. Most is a 24-hour weigh-in is the most common one out there, and that's good for a weight cut, as in you should be able to replenish most of it unless you've done a really stupid massive weight cut or you've done it pretty ineffectively. Um, but there are some that are two-hour weigh-ins. And if you have a two-hour weigh-in, there's no way you can replenish your glycogen or rehydrating time. Mm-hmm. So if you have a two-hour weigh-in, you want a pretty small weight cut, basically, if you're doing one at all. And for most people, I probably wouldn't recommend weight cutting for a two-hour weigh-in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. So in the case of a 24-hour weigh-in, if you had a an athlete who made weight, you know, how would you go about yeah. replenishing before their comp? Yeah, so I have a rehydration shake kind of thing. Like basically I've got ingredients right in front of me where it's one liter of water, two grams of electrolyte powder, three grams of creatine, 30 grams of glucose powder, 20 grams of protein powder, and 15 grams of glutamine. Obviously, if it's a smaller athlete, I go a little bit less than that. If it's a larger athlete, I go a little bit more than that. And basically they have that every hour for three to four hours and they sip on it rather than chug it down. And the reason for that is because um, hydration rates are far better when people sip versus have it really, really quickly. Because if you have it all at once, generally you're excreting more through urine pretty quickly. Whereas if you sip on it, you absorb it better. And then after that, you're trying to get your glycogen stores completely refueled. So just having a ton of carbohydrates outside that, having salt with all of your meals as well to help in terms of that, and just having enough water overall into a wane, basically. And then I suppose you probably ease off a little bit right before the competition, obviously, because you don't want a lot of food sitting in your stomach. So just going with something really familiar, like two to three hours before the competition. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, you definitely sound like you've got it all planned out, which is a lot better than for some of the other processes we've seen on social media. So Yeah, <laughs> yeah people dying in saunas. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So trying to limit saunas as possible. Um, saunas is probably like a last resort. It's better than some strategies, but you want to try and do this all all dietary basically. And if you need to use a sauna, um, a dry sauna is better to use than what you call a wet sauna just because you sweat out far more in a dry sauna. Um, but it's a last resort because it is something that's probably going to decrease your performance a little bit more than these other options. Definitely. 
All right, so we're coming up on an hour now. So um, that's all the questions for today. But we just want to say, you know, a huge thank you for joining us on the podcast. And we do have one final question for you, which we do ask all of our interviewees. So what is one interesting thing that you learned this week and can be related to absolutely anything, not necessarily health or nutrition? Um, so I said I was going to have an answer for this one. I don't have an answer. Basically, the one thing that I really did learn was I, I quit my job, um, my part-time job. I didn't really, I haven't, this is my announcement now. I guess I'm going to post on Instagram later today. But I had a part-time job thinking, or just in case my business didn't go as well as it has, because like I said, it's early days, it's only been three months. And I basically was learning that I don't really like to work for other people, even if like it was a great job. Like there's nothing that like I can't point to any flaws really. I just didn't really enjoy it. It didn't light me up the same as doing my own stuff. And I've had my last day and I guess I've learned this week that I just love freedom. Like I just, the feeling associated with that is just so, so good. And I really appreciate it. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing to hear you say that because I think Jack and I can definitely relate. <laughs> Yeah, well, it does resonate with us a lot because, yeah, we quit our previous jobs to pursue our own sort of business together. And, yeah, congrats on um, quitting or resigning from that one. And, yeah, Re like resigning is always a nicer <laughs> word, eh? <laughs> yeah, resigning, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, uh, it's quite the feeling when you realize you're like, man, I'm actually capable of doing my own thing, you know, and I don't need this, you know, second side job anymore. I, I can really do this. And, it's awesome to, you know, invest all of your time really where your passions are. Such a relief. Yes, yeah, so good. And I'm sure you guys feel it as well. Yeah. All right. So, Aiden, before we sign off, please let all the listeners know where can they find you? How can they get in touch with you? Um, so, basically, Instagram is where I drive everybody towards. So, it's Aiden the Dietitian, spelled A-I-D-A-N. And, yeah, you can just find me on there, put out daily content, and you can message me with questions or anything at any time. I answer all my DMs, and that's the place I'd recommend going. Fantastic. Awesome. All right. Well, um, guys, if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Aiden, tag the Bodybuilding Dietitians, tag Jack, tag myself, and we'll catch you in the next episode.